0: The story has been told many times of a woman who had the thankless job of working for an airline in an airport, having to deal with people when they're at their most frazzled. And one day, it was a very bad day for passenger interaction. Several flights had been delayed. Some flights had been canceled. There was a a long line of people there at her gate waiting to come up and, and recheck things and move flights, and everyone was on edge. And in the midst of trying to help everybody as best she could, a very pompous man in a very expensive looking suit, elbowed his way up in front of the line, put himself between that first person and the counter and said, listen, I need you to put me on the next flight to Chicago. I need to be first class and I need you to do it right now. Of course she said to him "Uh, I'm sorry sir we're doing our best to help everybody in turn and we will do our best to get you on another flight but I can't guarantee what flight and I need you to go to the back of the line please to which the man became rather irate. And he began to say many demeaning things about the woman and the airline and the incompetence and and his level of dissatisfaction. And, and eventually, when I mean, he'd kind of burned himself out and he had to stop and take a breath. The woman said, that may very well be, but sir, you do need to move to the back of the line. You're not gonna get any help until it's your turn. At this point, the man sort of tipped up onto his toes to appear taller for just a moment, looked her right in the eye, and demanded, do you know who I am? And without missing a beat, she hit the transmit button, grabbed the microphone that let her address the entire concourse, and said, attention passengers, there is a man at gate 14 who does not know who he is. If you can help, please report to gate 14. I have always thought of don't you know who I am, or do you know who I am, as kind of the most pathetic question someone can ask, because it simultaneously implies you should know who I am, because I am very important by my own estimation, Well, acknowledging you don't seem to know. And so I've kind of failed at being as significant as I thought that I was. And as humiliating as that is in human-to-human interaction, we see something very similar happening here in our text in Acts chapter 19, and it's even more of a humiliation. And in that humiliation, I think that we can learn something for ourselves for today, for our view of ourselves, for how we approach one another, and especially how we approach the throne of God. Of course, we are here in Acts 19, where Paul is in Ephesus. Paul spends quite a bit of time in Ephesus. It's his longest stretch of teaching in the synagogue, uh, which is three months before he reaches the level of opposition that causes him to withdraw. And it's the longest time that he stays in any one city. Two years and change he stays here because there was a great opportunity despite being many adversaries. What we saw happening last week uh, was Paul leaving the synagogue and going down the road to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, where he would teach day by day all of those who wanted to learn, whether Jew or Gentile. Now, we didn't mention it last week, but we don't know really anything about Tyrannus, except for the fact that he had a hall in Ephesus, which tells us this is probably a philosophical teacher, uh, and that his name means tyrant. I don't know who names their child Tyrant. There are, in my mind, two possibilities, only one of them likely. The first is that his students gave him that name. Uh, there probably comes to your mind Uh, someone who you had for a class in high school or college or grad school who could have been named the tyrant. And this guy just grabbed it and went with it. Yeah, you bet. I'm Tyrannus. Or the other possibility is that his parents gave him that name, not when he was a newborn baby, but when he was a toddler. I've known many toddlers who should be renamed Tyrannus, at least for a time. But probably he was called this because of his heavy-handed teaching that he, he, he came and he made many demands and put a a heavy yoke on his students, he demanded a lot of them and when we watch Paul, and so we see Paul teaching in that setting. And yet Paul has a different approach. Yes, Paul is intense about wanting to get there. He went directly to Ephesus over mountains, literally instead of the easier path that would have gone through the valleys. And now that he is there, he is teaching not tyrannically, but tenaciously teaching every day the gospel of grace that rather than putting a heavy yoke on you, says Jesus bore that yoke and now he has one for you that is easy and light Six days a week, five hours a day, for two years, he was teaching. Last week, we mentioned that if you look in, in your Bible, there's undoubtedly a footnote. There is a, a uh, alternate reading. It seems to me that if it is not original, it is very ancient. And it tells us of the schedule that Paul kept, which was that from 11 to 4, which is five hours a day, he was preaching. That would total more than 3,000 hours of teaching there in Ephesus. That's tenacious, that's tireless. And he did this in addition to whatever leatherwork and tent making that he was doing with Priscilla and Achilla. And undoubtedly he was doing some of this as evidenced by what we see here in verse 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I don't know about you, but this is the kind of passage I have been tempted to sort of read quickly through because I don't really know exactly what to make of it. Uh, For someone living in the 21st century, I I squirm a little bit when we get to this kind of supernatural stuff happening there in the midst of the big city. I think about people who have sort of abused this sort of passage and and try to make it the, the norm Uh, But at the end of the day, we really don't want to downplay this because it's in the scriptures for a reason and it shouldn't even really surprise us all that much. We think about Elisha's bones having the power uh, when a corpse was tossed upon them uh, to bring the man back to life in the Old Testament. Or in the Gospels, how the woman with the issue of blood touched just the hem of Jesus' garment and that barely and was healed. And he said, healing power went out of me. Or we think in in chapter 5 of Acts of Peter's shadow as it passed over people who were sick, healing them is something that happens in the scriptures. There is something bigger than our understanding of an atomistic world with cause and effect and everything explainable and understandable by us via normal scientific means. But the question remains, then, is this normal? I mean, should we be doing this now with the aprons and handkerchiefs of missionaries or, or even pastors? You know, when you turn on the Big Hair Religious channel, you see this stuff. Write a big fat check and we'll send you a, a blessed prayer handkerchief dipped in the Jordan River or or take your own hanky and hold it up to the TV and then send in $50. And and then when you put that, that handkerchief under your pillow at night, you'll have nice sweet dreams. Is this something we ought to still be doing? Well, it's funny you should ask because I have recently set up an Etsy shop of all my old, like, yellowed handkerchiefs. And you can buy <laughs> No, these miracles were, by Luke's very description, the first thing he says about them, before he even describes them, is that they were extraordinary, meaning not ordinary, beyond ordinary. So even among miracles, which are themselves extraordinary events, and even among those in the book of Acts, which seem to be more numerous and greater than many of the, the miracles we see afterward, even among those, these were set apart as unique These extraordinary miracles may be part of why Paul remained in Ephesus for more than two years. When God is clearly at work, you keep your hands to the plow. You don't move on. And so he writes to Corinth. He says, I'm going to stay here and keep on doing ministry here for some time because the door is wide open and the the harvest is coming in and God is at work. And notice it is God who does these things. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. Sometimes we do see in the scriptures the sort of shorthand of, you know, Peter did great signs in in Samaria or that sort of thing. But the emphasis here is firmly on God choosing to work outside of his ordinary means and do something extraordinary. And I believe part of the reason why these signs are so prominent and prevalent in the book of Acts is because in that world, they had no New Testament to read. Only the word of evangelists and apostles. And so God verified their words with miracles. Miracles and acts often play a dual role. First of opening the door at the front end and and raising someone's interest in what the apostles might say. And then when they've heard, confirming the truth of the gospel on the back end. Like bookends around the gospel. The gospel, though, is then central. I also believe that part of the reason we see these extraordinary miracles here is because God is doing the same thing the apostles tend to do with the gospel, which is contextualize. Now, we can't change the gospel. You don't want to add to the gospel. You don't want to take away from the gospel, but you do want to make it uh, something that can be digested and understood and meaningful to your audience, which is why we see, for example, that Paul he brings the gospel in an entirely different way if he's addressing the Jews in the synagogue or if he's addressing the Greek philosophers on the Areopagus. You may find that you, you bring the gospel, the same gospel in a different way to a group of, of primary school kids versus a college group versus a group of seniors. It, it, the context determines how you are going to communicate. Jesus even did this, right? He, he's, he's using uh, agrarian pictures when he's talking to people living in an agrarian world. He tends to use more city-based uh, and, and commerce-based things when he's in the big city. And it seems to me that the Holy Spirit often is using miracles in the book of Acts that correlate to the audience hearing the gospel so that there is a maximum effect in opening up interest and then confirming the truth of the word. In Ephesus, Greek philosophy had been blended with Eastern superstitions to the point where people in Ephesus were somewhat obsessed with magic, it seems. Ephesus was famous for these scrolls full of magic formulae. In fact, we mentioned a few weeks ago that to Corinthianize meant to just throw yourself into full-on immorality, and that's something that goes even back to the, the Greek city of Corinth. And in a similar way, we find that Ephesian writings was just a way to refer to books full, scrolls full of magic formulas. Perhaps This is why the Holy Spirit manifests in so many miraculous signs here in ways that overshadow the power of those pagan superstitions, much like how in Exodus, in doing these 10 plagues, God seems to be unseating one of the gods of Egypt with each of those plagues. I'm sure you've seen those charts which sort of lay this out one at a time dethroning the gods that they worshiped rather than the one true God, starting with the Nile, the God that perhaps was the most comfort to them, that they thought of as being most powerful. God tears them down. And here we have a case of the Holy Spirit showing his power to be greater than sorcery and magic, which held the city in bondage. I think it's Noteworthy that it was to Ephesus that Paul wrote these famous words, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so no, this is not normative, that you might take a handkerchief from someone who is thought of as quite holy or, or quite pious and expect that it will have some miraculous power. And, and note, it doesn't even say that Paul gave them these articles or even approved of it. Rather, that people took them. That when he left his work to teach, apparently some of his students or perhaps just some opportunists would snag his aprons, which would go around the waist, of course, his, his handkerchiefs. And God chose to condescend and work through these items in a way that would communicate his power to the people of Ephesus, even to the point of working through sweat cloths. And yes, that is the, the best translation. In fact, the word there that's translated a handkerchief, sudarium, it's borrowed from Latin and it comes from a root meaning sweat. It literally means like a sweat band that he would wear on his head. He'd wipe his hands on his apron. He would, he would wipe his head with this sweat band or sweat cloth which by way of just a small digression, I think does tell us something important about how God views our work, that God is here blessing not just Paul's teaching and preaching, but his labors, the toil of his hands, that perhaps what is being blessed here to work in a a miraculous and supernatural way is not just these items, rather it is the things about Paul that they represent. Much like, remember, when Aaron's rod became a snake in the book of Exodus. It wasn't a magic rod. It was that about Aaron, which the rod represents, or or Samson's hair, giving him his strength. It wasn't some magical incantation. It was what it represented, his vow, his Nazarite vow, the one thing which he had not yet pulled back from God, his submission to God that gave him his strength. But the point is here that, that Paul seems uninvolved. He certainly did not sell these items. He doesn't seem that he gave them away even. It's very much in contrast to the many hucksters of religious items relating to Artemis of the Ephesians, which even in our text next week is going to cause a riot because all of what is going on in the miraculous world and the preaching of gospel is eating into their profit margins. 1,500 years later, the medieval church would still be doing a similar thing, selling amulets and relics and indulgences. And even today, as I mentioned, you often run into this sort of thing with self-described apostles and evangelists and the like. And perhaps most importantly, notice that these extraordinary miracles are only described after a great emphasis on the teaching, on the proclaiming of the gospel and the teaching of the word. What happens next is perhaps even more shocking. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. In a town like Ephesus, obsessed with the magical, the mystical, Obviously, exorcism is going to be needed very much and also is going to be big business. Exorcism or or attempted exorcism was fairly common uh, in the ancient world, even in Second Temple Judaism. There are detailed formulas and rituals involved. Apparently, they were not very effective or at least not always effective. As we read in Luke 4, that the people... Quote, were amazed as they spoke together one with another saying what is this word for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out so the fact that jesus could simply say quiet come out of him by his own authority set him apart from the exorcists that the people were used to those who would come whether as part of a priestly duty or simply as kind of outside contractors and try and, and do this work as workmen. Justin Martyr, writing not too long after this, describes these exorcisms as, quote, fumigations and incantations, and says they were filled with as many names of men and deities as they could cram into them. Well, I think in verse 14 we see a little window into what this world of exorcism for hire looked like because we have a man named Sceva who is perhaps a patriarch in one of the high priestly families in which case his sons who are all all seven of them uh, exorcists would expect that the demons would respect their name don't you know who I am but certainly not an actual high priest not the high priest like Annas or Caiaphas who, who sat on that chair of authority. This is probably, in fact, a self-designation. As it was well known among the pagans that in Judaism, only the high priest was permitted to pronounce the otherwise untouchable, indescribable, ineffable name of God. And so, if it's the, if the power's in the name, then he's gonna say, oh no, no, me and my sons, we're, we're high priestly. And so we have special power. Otherwise, how do you explain seven of them? Seven, this is a family business. This is like Skiva and Sons exorcisms, right? It's like those. It's like that family of lawyers that you see the 1-800 number four all the time on TV. I mean, I can see the ads for this right now. Exorcise your demons the Scevy way. Call Skiva and Sons. And looking at the text closely, we see yet something else about them. The, the way they describe Jesus, the way they reference him, not even Jesus who is called the Christ. Now, there are so many Jesuses, that was one of the most popular names at the time, so they have to distinguish him. So they distinguish him by saying, Jesus, whom Paul preaches. All they really knew about him was that Paul had had success and that they were less and less in demand because Paul was so successful in casting out evil spirits. And so these guys try their hand at it. They're essentially trying exactly what Simon Magus wanted to do. He saw the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, how much? How do I buy that? There will always be those who see God's great power manifest, people set free by it, and all they will see is dollar signs. Jesus spent some time warning us about this. There there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, who will not even enter the kingdom. Certainly not everyone who uses the name Jesus then is a gospel teacher. Jesus warned us again and again that there will be false Christs, false teachers, false prophets that use the right name, but would not be among his sheep, and certainly not among his shepherds. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Well, verse 15, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is absolute pure humiliation in the Jewish world. The connection of nakedness and shame going all the way back to the garden and the the fundamental teachings of the faith were tied very closely together. They have been completely defeated here. It's one thing to fail at driving out the evil spirit, but here the evil spirit drove them out. It's a reverse exorcism. And it drove them out naked and humiliated, bloodied and defeated. The name of Jesus is no magic Talisman. We get upset when we hear people say the words Jesus Christ as a curse word, as we should. We we cringe when someone says, I swear to Christ in some kind of uh, crass oath, as well we should, and we should take them aside, and we should warn them what they are doing, the wrath that they are storing up against the day of wrath. But there are ways of taking the name of Jesus in vain that are just as wicked and at least as dangerous, but a whole lot more holy sounding. And that's what's happening here. There's no faith. There's no belief. There's no true relationship between these men and Jesus. And yet they are taking his name very much in vain. His name will not be a magic charm or a magic word. Even with Jesus' own disciples, in that passage that Mimi read for us, they were not always able to drive out the evil spirits. He says to them, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. But here are some who don't even believe, pulling the name that is above all names, at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess, like it's just another tool out of their tool belts. This name will not just be thrown around. The demons know who is a threat and who is not who to fear, and who not to. Listen, my friends, I don't care to be famous in this world. There have been maybe half a dozen times that someone has said to me, hey, hey, I, I, didn't you write some books? You're an author, right? I say, why, yes, yes, I am. Recently that happened. I said, yeah, so you're, you're Aaron Bartles? <laughs> Listen, I don't care to be famous in this world, but I want to be famous in hell. I want to be infamous in hell. Forget friends in low places. I want enemies in the lowest of places. I do not want to hear the enemy say, Jesus I know, Paul I know, Sean I know, Kim I know, but who are you supposed to be? How is it that this demon knows Paul? There's there's actually two different Greek words, and and sometimes they're translated differently. Uh, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, or Jesus I know, Paul I know of... The first one is Ganosco, uh, Jesus, I know, I know what we might say in the biblical sense, a close relationship, time spent together, some intimacy. And if what we think we know about kind of the origin of these evil spirits is true, then probably there was some level of intimacy at one time between this spirit and the son of man, the second person of the Trinity. Paul, I know of, I know about, epistemi. I'm familiar with his work, which tells us that there could never be a way to cast out demons in the name of Paul or, or via Paul, because it's not the power of the name of Paul that brings fear to these demons. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know of. You, not so much. We think about what we read in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Think about how that Matthew 7 passage that I mentioned earlier continues and finishes out. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's that word for the relational kind of knowing. And in that passage that Mimi read for us, after he expressed his frustration with how faithless his disciples could be, and how long-suffering he would have to be in dealing with them. What were Jesus' words? He said, bring the boy to me. That sums up how we can be involved in any level of deliverance or, or ministering to someone who is in bondage. We cannot set them free. We cannot fix their problem. We cannot save them, but we can bring that person to him if we know him. We have access to him by the spirit. We are adopted as his sons and daughters. We can go freely to the throne of grace. And he says, bring the boy, bring that man, bring that woman, bring that girl to me. And I will deliver them. And though God seems to have condescended in some ways to speak to these people where they were in Ephesus, he shows that their assumptions are dead wrong. See, There was a sense that power came from simply knowing the names of spiritual beings But here, the spiritual being didn't know their names, and so he didn't bother with them. Knowing the name of Jesus and using the name of Jesus, saying the name of Jesus, evoking the name of Jesus is not a guarantor of great things to happen. The name of Jesus is holy, yes, as was the Ark of the Covenant. It contained Aaron's rod, which had budded, which we just mentioned. It contained the the jar of manna. It contained the original tablets, of the, the Ten Commandments, and above it resided, on above the mercy seat, uh, the the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory of God there in the Holy of Holies. It was so holy that a guy died simply by reaching out to try and steady it so it wouldn't fall over. And yet, when the Israelites said, oh, we need to win this battle, grab the Ark of the Covenant and put it out in front of us, because that will guarantee victory because of the level of power imbued in that object They lost the battle, and they lost it bad. And for a time, they even lost the ark. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Notice here that these seven sons were humiliated, and at the same time, Jesus' name was exalted. Fear gripped the people of Ephesus, When they heard about this and Jesus' name was given more appropriate honor, followed by an act of total devotion that we see here in the next verse. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. They openly confessed their sins that were bound up in secrecy. In fact, the power was thought to be in the secrecy. The King James says that they confessed and showed their deeds and that's adequate, but I think we see more of the depth of what's going on here in in the ESV. They confessed and divulged their practices. This is not a case of magicians never reveal their secrets. No, this is the secrets are the magic, the true magic. I think of many people today who come out of the occult and by way of of ridding themselves of that bondage, they say, let me tell you every secret that I learned, even at great uh, danger to myself and to my person. You want another secret handshake to get into that temple? Here it is. It takes the power right out of it. Christianity, by the way, has no secrets. We proclaim our full doctrine to all, saying, whoever will come and be saved. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is not a bunch of new converts, by the way. It says those who believed, it's in the perfect tense. They had believed in the past and the effects were now really setting in. They had true faith, but they were babes in Christ. And they had not yet made this decisive break from their past. And now they're emboldened to do it. And it's a beautiful and amazing a powerful thing that happens here, even though it also makes us nervous. Because we hear book burning, and we think, not a great idea. And we think, Nazis and Hitler. But remember, first of all, that Paul and his companions and the Christians in Ephesus had never heard of Nazis or Hitler. And that this is an entirely different kind of deal. This is not a forced book burning trying to erase any ideas that conflict with my own dogma. Therefore, I'm commanding you, burn everything else. No, here's something very different. People throwing incredibly expensive scrolls of incantations, amulets, charms, and other occult items that they own into a fire by their own choice because they've decided for themselves they want nothing to do with this stuff. This is not Externally compelled. This is internal compulsion by the Spirit to purge oneself of these items. These things that hold them to the past. Their life as enemies of the cross before they were saved. Totally rejecting it. Those things consumed in the flames. Many, if not all of these, quote, books were actually very little scrolls that would be rolled up and carried as amulets around the neck, literally over one's heart. They were close to their hearts and, and it might be something that you would reach up and, and kind of touch and, and feel and, and kind of rub your fingers against and remind yourself, I'm safe. I've got my amulet. I'm, I'm protected. And now that they've got Christ, they don't need this thing near their heart. They've got Christ in their hearts. They don't need to, to hold on to these things. They want to pull them off and cast them into the flames, and God bless them for it. They didn't care about the, the price. These 50,000 silver pieces are probably the, the drachma, which was equal to a talent of gold, which was one day's wage for the average laborer. And by that accounting, this is literally millions of dollars of scrolls and charms being burned up. I mean, I've got a lot of books, and I worry about a fire destroying them, but nothing compared to this. And there's a lot of money in Ephesus. This doesn't surprise us. Ephesus was called the treasure house of Asia because it was where several trade routes converged. But the Judas in me hears about how much money was involved and I think, like Judas, as he said to Jesus, why this waste? We could have done so much good for the poor with that perfume. I think, well, they could have sold these things. And with the money, they could have funded Paul's mission or the local church or, or the church in Jerusalem. But no, then they'd still be out there cursing someone else. This is very much like in the book of Joshua, when God says, you're going to be tempted when you go into Jericho, when I deliver that city to you, to take a bunch of stuff for yourself for spoil, but don't. Burn it all. It is all dedicated to me in the flames. What is called the herem in the Hebrew. It's often translated the ban. Those things which are burned up to honor God. And these items were valuable in that they had cost 50,000 silver pieces, but they had no true value. Not compared to Christ. For Judas, 30 pieces of silver was enough to turn on Christ. For these Christians who were filled with this holy fire, 50,000 didn't even come close. They'd rather have Jesus. And I've known many people who have turned their back on great opportunities and treasure and wealth. I've known many people who have who have made what might seem to outsiders like kind of rash and extreme and over the top reactions to their sins of the past, pouring out that drink, quitting that job, cutting those ties, deleting those contacts from their phone saying, I want nothing to do with those things that will drag me back into my life as an enemy of Christ. You know, it's easy to say, yeah, Jesus, whom Paul preaches, that's my guy. But is there any sacrifice, any radical obedience to point to, to say this is an actual reality in my life? It's easy when we apply a passage like this, to jump right over the supernatural aspect and say, what is the equivalent in our world today? But let me suggest that in our world today, we often need to do the same thing, that there is a great occult and spiritualist presence, even amongst the churches today. And it is dangerous. Sean Tyler, who is a missionary to several countries in, in Africa, explains the challenge of helping his His converts reject the influence of evil spirits and witchcraft. He says this, responding to the gospel is the greatest step in their move away from the bondage of the spirits. A complete cleansing must take place in the new Christian's home and life. The missionaries and church leaders must lead the new Christian in burning all objects associated with the spirits, remove and destroy all symbols and charms of witchcraft, shrines, sacrifices, and objects of protection. This may involve digging up buried charms, pulling up special plants, cutting off amulets from the body, ripping out charms sewn into clothing, and uncovering all manner of talismans hidden in the roof, bedroom, kitchen, grain storage, and compound. There is a great need to fill up a person's life with good now that he or she has emptied him or herself of evil. Now, let me ask you this. If the spirit moved in the same way that he did in Ephesus in Acts 19, if he moved with that power in our land, and if the fear of the Lord and the desire to bring honor to his name was as evident today here as it was in Ephesus in the days of Paul, what would be burned up? Again, let me suggest, don't jump right over that supernatural stuff. Recently, I read a survey on the Gospel Coalition website, and it was very disheartening. It was about the acceptance of these sort of things within the church. Levels of acceptance of astrology and psychics and going to mediums. Even something as simple as a dream catcher. Oh, I put that over my bed to catch the bad dreams. It's animism. It's idolatry. It's wickedness. These are things that need to go into the fire. A Christian told me not that long ago that there were vibrations in the universe that were sending out good and bad energy and you had to absorb the right vibrations. The law of attraction. This is the kind of thing we have to leave behind. As babes in Christ, we might not see the contradiction. It might not yet convict us. The spirit might not be at that point yet in our lives. But as we mature in Christ, we need to reject these things. Even something like yoga. Uh Uh-oh hey, finally got really quiet in here. Now, I'm not talking about stretching. I'm not talking about you know getting together in a class to, to keep yourself healthy. That's good. If you're somebody like me, bend over to pick up your keys and you make some hideous, like I'm dying noise just from the, the act of, of picking them up. But be careful. Be careful whom you learn it from and, and at what level you get involved that you do not enter into the spiritual stuff. The original purpose of yoga, which by the way, yoga meaning yoked, yoked to these Hindu deities. The purpose being to obtain moksha, a form of spiritual enlightenment by awakening chakras. My friends, this freedom is actually bondage. There are a series of movements and, and positions which seem like just regular old calisthenics or stretching or something, but were designed in order to evoke different gods, different deities. Kind of the opposite of what we see happening in Egypt where each miracle was meant to unseat a different God. Now instead, bowing to them. Be careful, just be careful in this sort of thing. And wherever you find yourself possibly crossing a line into a world of the supernatural where Christ is not at the center and honored above all else, be prepared, even if you love it, even if it's something that brings you some comfort and some some sense of peace of mind in your life to take it and throw it in the fire. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To be willing to lose your life in order to find it. Ironically, at the same time, as as everyone is more and more uh, accepting of all of these practices, people are downplaying, even in the church, more and more the dangers of these principalities, these powers, these rulers. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Exorcist. Probably not because you're Baptist, right? Probably you won't admit it anyway. But it's based on a book which is a true story and it's it's very very loosely based on the book which is a true story. And and one thing that is very much the same between the book and the movie is that when the mother of the demonized child first went to the church and said, I I want an exorcism for my child. How do I make that happen? She was told, well, first you need to get yourself a time machine and go back to the Middle Ages because we don't do that anymore. Now, that is no longer the case in that particular church. There has been some movement there, but but even in the church, people seem to have kind of demythologized, quote-unquote, the scriptures to the point where, well, we are not too worried about these spiritual practices, I, I think I'm more worried about greed or maybe global injustice or good things to be working on, but do not let them overshadow the very real dangers that are behind many of these practices and the foothold it can give the enemy in your life. Be on guard, be watchful. I mean, if, if your kid's head started spinning around 360 degrees and, and pea soup was spraying out of his mouth, yeah, you'd probably call me up. And even though you're a hardcore Baptist, you might say, I think I need an old priest and a young priest, right? And some some holy water. And maybe I'd say, yeah, we'll put that on uh, you know, the back burner uh, just in case. But you and I can be kept at a distance from God without all those theatrics. There are things we're holding on to that ought to be cast into the fire. Earlier, when I asked that question, if God was at work as powerfully here and now as he was in Ephesus back then, what would need to be burned up? Whatever popped into your mind, maybe for you, that's what needs to be burned up. Maybe that's what you need to let go of. There is probably someone in here today who wants to follow Jesus all the way, but doesn't want to throw that precious thing in the fire. They haven't gotten to the point where Jesus wants them, where he said you'd be willing even to chop off your hand or pluck out your eye that you might go with one hand or one eye into the kingdom of heaven rather than with all of your members into hell. You know that's the thing that needs to be tossed into the fire, but it's just too close to your heart, not unlike those amulets with the little scrolls that would hang right there, right over the hearts of those Ephesians. You know, Richard Sibbs gives us a very potent warning when he said, Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. Again, be prepared to lose your life and find it, because if you find your life, you will lose it. I also think that in our world today, we have a tendency, and again, even in the church, to try to use Jesus as a lucky charm, not unlike the seven sons of Sceva. People know less and less and less about the scriptures, but I still run into people all the time who think Jesus is like on their side and in their corner and and watching over them, despite having no real connection by faith or repentance or new life or anything. Well, not long ago, I asked a young woman what her favorite verse of the Bible was. And she said, I'm not sure what book of the Bible it's in, but it's uh, the one that's like, uh, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) And I said, listen, that's not in the Bible, but even if it was, I think it's telling that your favorite notion of what Jesus is to you is someone who at the very last second, if all else fails as this kind of hail Mary, and I guess, pardon the pun, you'll just put your hands up and say, fine. Okay. All else has failed. You give it a shot. You're there as my fail safe. Even when people are quoting actual scripture, we see this, this idea. In the last 10, 15 years, undoubtedly the most popular Bible verse I've seen is not John 3.16, but rather Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's on t-shirts. It's, it's on athletic wear implying that I can, you know, run up that mountain or, or deadlift these weights. It, it's, it's all over the place. And I know I kind of picked on this a few months ago. And if that's your favorite verse, I'm not picking on you. Just make sure that you look at it in its context that you understand it for what it truly means in what Paul is writing. First of all, it doesn't say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It says I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And you say, come on, Pastor Zach, you're splitting hairs. Isn't the one who strengthens me Christ? I don't know. Is Christ the one who strengthens you? Or is that just the name you use for your own inner drive or your own desires or your own plans and designs? Secondly, look at the context, and you don't have to look far. One verse earlier, we see what Paul is talking about, Philippians 4.12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be hungry. I can be poor. I can do those things because Christ gives me strength. In the last verse of our text, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord spreads more quickly when God's people put his glory above our comforts and our possessions and our pasts and our plans. And notice it's the word that goes forth, not the miracles, not the signs and wonder, not the aprons and hankies. The miracles are a means to an end. Same thing can be said of of cool worship spaces or church names or logos or catchphrases or flashy programs or elaborate sets or whatever. There's no power in these things apart from the fact that they are used as a vehicle to convey the gospel. If they're getting in the way, throw them in the fire. And finally, don't miss that this passage and the one before it and the one after it are the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ reaching a city. And then from that city, reaching well beyond to the point where everyone in Roman Asia, which is the entire area of modern day Turkey, had heard the gospel. When you read Revelation and you're reading in chapter two and three, and there's those seven letters, the seven churches, each of those was in this area. Most of them, if not all of them, had been started either directly or indirectly by this ministry of Paul here. And notice that it did this great work in the least likely of places. People weren't waiting for missionaries. Oh, we wanted you to come. We were hoping you would come. They weren't begging for the gospel. These weren't pious people. No, Ephesus was a cesspool. Not only did you have the usual big city vices, you also had all the emperor worship and the cult involved in that. You had the occult and occult activity. You had dark spiritual powers, the temple of Artemis, which apart from being a place of idolatry was also a place of asylum for criminals. So he had criminals flocking in. There was a very unsavory underbelly to this place. But Paul literally crossed mountains to get there and then stayed for the long haul because there was a great door and effectual there for ministry and there are many adversaries. The enemy, it seems, knew Paul's name. And that emboldened him to stay and reach that city. Yes, the gospel is always the same, wherever it is effectively proclaimed, but it must be contextualized to a given place and audience. And in a given setting, what is the primary thing that is keeping people in bondage, separating them from God, holding them back from their creator. It's easy to just present Jesus as bringing a generalized freedom or worse, as the answer to your felt needs. But if we don't call out the particular bondage in which people are living, that kind of preaching will likely result in syncretism. Saw that happen long ago in South America, right? Oh, there's a lot of idolatry here. There's a lot of polytheism. There's a lot of worshiping of all these different gods and goddesses. We're just going to say, all right, this is Jesus did this, and we're going to teach about the Bible story, and, and we're going to teach about the saints. And, we're gonna te- and before long, they were left with a church that had blended the two together, not unlike how the Ephesians had blended Greek philosophy and Eastern superstition. So now we're, we're praying to the same old gods, but they got new names. Like how you, you had these Greek gods and Roman gods kind of matched up over each other. I'm Jupiter, I'm Zeus, eh, who knows? Oh, this old goddess is now Mary, and this god is Joseph, and this one is... You see, when you don't call out the sin by name, it can remain powerful. The same thing happens today, I think. People not wanting to be offensive give a very generic gospel message. Jesus wants to, to give you hope. He wants to take away your pain. Jesus, even perhaps we say he wants to take away your sin, and yet we don't address the primary thing keeping those people in bondage and away from God. And, and audience to audience, it may vary. Today, my experience is that in our culture's backward, often satanic sexual ethic, we find the major source of bondage, and it's rarely ever addressed. It's a major stumbling block for people to come to Jesus. People will often just kind of slide right by that and, and let you assume, oh, you can follow Jesus and remain in your sin. You can follow Jesus and remain a worshiper of the flesh and self and sexual gratification. That will not result in the fear of God and the glorifying of his name. Only when we proclaim the gospel in its fullness, not caring what the results might be, throwing caution to the wind like Paul does here. And these chickens come home to roost here in the rest of chapter 19. But when we're willing to boldly make that proclamation... We will see the fear of God increasing, the glory of his name, Jesus being extolled, people openly confessing their sins and burning the bridge to their former sin. Read verse 20 one more time. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. May that describe our church this year and next and the year to come that by turning to Jesus and from our sin, by tossing those things into the fire that we've been keeping close to our heart, rolled up in a little scroll, kind of low key, just there by our hearts, taking those things and casting them into the flames, may we find that these words more and more describe our church, that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily.